everyone. I'm Kara and I'm here with Dr. Kimberly Dwyer, a clinical psychologist, author, and business coach. She has over two decades of experience working with adults, teens, and children and excels at the treatment of anxiety, stress, and managing transitional times. Dr. Dwyer practices in suburban Denver, Colorado and enjoys time with her three children and dogs when not working. Hi, Kim. Thank you for being here with me today. And I have a couple of questions for you. We're going to start really basic. What is mindfulness and is it the same or connected to meditation? Thanks, Kara. That's a great question. And thanks for having me here. Um, And a question near and dear to my heart and my work. The most simple explanation I've seen for mindfulness comes from a definition from John Kabat-Zinn, and it's that mindfulness is directed attention to the present moment without judgment. And when I read that or I hear that, I, I see three parts. The first is about attention. So mindfulness is about where we're putting our attention. A, a great metaphor I like for this is to think about a dark room um, and having a flashlight. And that's like our attention. So it's where are we shining our flashlight? And there's so many different focuses at any one time for our attention. Being mindful of our attention is thinking about where we're focusing it. And are we focusing it into some, something in the future that hasn't happened yet? Are we focusing it on the past? Are we focusing it right now? And there's nothing wrong with focusing on thinking about the future, thinking about the past. Like that's probably part of why we do well as a species because we can plan and we can learn from past mistakes, even just past interactions. But when we're being mindful, we're directing our attention. Now, the second part of that definition to the present moment. Um, So mindful awareness is about bringing our attention back to the present moment. And I say back to the present moment because so very often it's not there, especially in situations where we're anxious Anxiety is almost always future oriented. It can be present moment if we're in a anxious situation, but a lot of times our anxiety is anticipatory, thinking about something that might happen in the future and all the different possible outcomes that might come from that. So that's all future oriented. A lot of other uncomfortable emotions may have past tense associations. So things like regret, remorse, even grieving, sadness, you know, about things that have already passed, embarrassment, guilt. There's again, there's nothing wrong with any of those emotions and they're important to pay attention to when they come up, but being aware, okay, my brain is going into the past tense right now. Is that where I want to be? Is that going to serve me for this activity I'm engaged in? Or is that something that might be better to do when I'm like sitting quietly journaling or or having some time to be reflective um, as opposed to almost like losing the time that's right here in front of me. And the third part of that definition is without judgment. So attention to the present moment without judgment. So without judgment in my mind says not bringing in preconceived notions about a situation. So experiencing a situation as if for the first time, because most situations, even if they're similar to other situations, there's, there's some pieces of it that are different. And we don't always do ourselves a a service when we overlay those preconceived notions, those judgments, those concepts too heavily onto something new, because we take away the opportunity to experience, you know, something that's different about that situation. So that's what mindfulness is. And you asked, is it the same as meditation? And that's kind of complicated. So we can formally, I think about it as there's formal mindfulness practice and there's informal mindfulness practice, but maybe it's not practice, maybe it's application. So formal mindfulness practice might look like meditation. It might look like sitting quietly on a cushion, maybe eyes closed, maybe eyes open and noticing where our attention is going and bringing our attention to something that we want it to be focused on. A lot of beginner mindfulness practices will look at a focus on the breath. 
which is great because we're hopefully we're breathing. Each breath really is a brand new experience. And really on like a almost metaphysical level, like our breath is what's connecting us to the world around us. We're, you know, taking in what we need and expelling what we don't need anymore. So it's always with us. Um, it's a deep kind of connection. Our breath also kind of resets our nervous system. If we're breathing slowly, you know, we send a signal up to the brain that we're doing okay. So whatever that focus is, literature will often refer to that as like an anchor. So there's some anchor, you know, just like an anchor is going to keep a ship in place, you know, using your breath as an anchor is going to keep your attention in place. So just constantly bringing our attention back to our breath. So that's like formal practice of mindfulness. And I do have on my um, website, I have a free uh, breath awareness meditation that people can listen to if they're interested. And then when we look at informal practice or maybe application, that's what we're doing when we're walking around the world. We're noticing where our attention is going. If I'm having an interaction, I'll just make one up off the top of my head. Say I'm having an interaction with a neighbor and maybe in the past, this neighbor has been irritated with me because my lawn has weeds in it. And I walk outside and I see my neighbor. What am I experiencing? Am I immediately bringing up this notion of, oh gosh, you know, that's crabby old so-and-so and they're going to be upset with me because there's a dandelion in my front yard. Or can I just bring my attention to the present moment? Like here's an opportunity to interact with a person and to experience them. And before I get caught up in, they're going to be irritated about the dandelion. Here's how I'm going to respond. And I get into this imaginary conversation in my head. Can I just come back to right now and just experience being outside, seeing somebody that I know and seeing what unfolds before me? Thank you. That's great. I like what you were saying about thinking about the present, the past and the future. And I mean, definitely, if you're anxious, it's a lot of what if this will happen or what if this won't happen? You're thinking too much about the future, not enough about the now. But as adults, it's a lot easier to understand these big, broad concepts than for a child because it's a lot more complicated for them. So my next question is, how can mindfulness be helpful in parenting? How do structure and routine come into play? Mindfulness can be super helpful in parenting because, again, like my example with the dandelion in the yard and the crabby neighbor, um, how often do we get into situations with our own children where we may anticipate a certain outcome based on what's happened in the past? You know, perhaps we have a child that doesn't like to go down to bed, doesn't like to get ready for bed and go to sleep. And we get into, you know, some conversation in our own head about what it's going to be like. Oh, it's time to put Joey to bed. And, you know, I'm so tired. I've got a busy day tomorrow. I really need him to go to sleep quickly. I can't get into, you know, this three hour long cajoling of, of getting a child to bed. And when we get into that, like I can even hear it in my own voice when I make up that situation, we bring our emotions along for the ride. We bring our physiology along for the ride. So we get into this future oriented, this is going to happen. It's going to be awful. It's going to be hard for me to deal with it. You know, our thoughts are going there. We wind up with changes in our nervous system activity, basically fight or flight starts to kick in. And, uh, you know, our body responds as if we're in a dangerous situation, our emotions, you know, synchronize what we're thinking, what our body's feeling and come up with, you know, the emotional response. It could be anxiety, it could be stress, it could be any kind of uncomfortable emotion around that. So we do our own self a disservice because now we're not in a mental and emotional state where we're going to parent as effectively as we could if we're calm. And we do our child a disservice because we've already kind of prejudged what they're going to do. And we don't really leave an allowance for a different kind of experience. So I think being really aware of where we're at and, and practicing mindfulness can help us show up in the moment as preconceived notion free as possible with our child and really meet them where they're at and allow them to meet us where they're at. 
I imagine the child would notice the difference in the parent's behavior and in their mindset, how they're prepared to meet the child somewhere and understand their emotions too. Sure, absolutely. If we come into a situation where, you know, we're interacting with a child and we're revved up, we have, they call them mirror neurons. We have really good ways of understanding other people's experiences. Even very young children, you know, have that kind of built in. It helps us to be part of a social community by reading other people's emotions and knowing how to interact with them. So if you come in or I come in, anybody comes in, you know, loaded for bear essentially, and the child's going to pick up on that, you know, it's not going to be a great experience necessarily for them. And maybe they're not going to be as calm. You know, they're going to be kind of guarded on edge or reflect some of that anxiety or arousal that they see in us. So, you know, being kind of in charge and in control of our emotions and, and bringing them back to the present moment is going to be helpful to us. It's going to be helpful for our child to kind of co-regulate off of us. And it's an opportunity to even model what's going on for us. So, you know, none of us are perfect. Uh, we could go into that situation, recognize what's going on. Maybe we've already even like been kind of short time to get to bed. I told you to, you know, clean up the stuff on the floor so that we can get ready for bed. We can recognize that. That's a moment of mindfulness in itself, like recognizing, Ooh, I'm not where I want to be right now. I just heard my own tone of voice and that's not how I would want to be talked to. That's not how I want to show up for my child. And we can even say, you know what, mommy just realized I'm feeling a little bit stressed. I'm going to take a couple deep breaths and try and get back in charge of myself. And so that we can enjoy the rest of, you know, bedtime together, model it to have your, have your child join you in doing that. You know, it might be harder for kids to conceptually understand mindfulness, but they can do it. They can take a deep breath. They can say, okay, right now I'm here and I can feel my body and I can feel if my hands are tight and I can feel if my hands are relaxed and, you know, go through muscles in the body and relax them or just notice how their breath feels, what they smell in the air around them, what they can hear if they make their body really silent and still. Those are all things that kids are capable of. So you can kind of establish a routine before bedtime, for example, with the breathing or some kind of meditation or mindfulness of what happened during the day, or even what we are thankful for. What other structure or routine could you build from this? Sure. Sticking with kind of bedtime, we can certainly build routines around bedtime uh, to help kids get to sleep and help them kind of learn what their body needs and winding down for the day. You know, incorporating a mindfulness activity is great. My book, Mindful Mondays, is written for adults, but there's lots of strategies that a parent could learn and then share at like an age appropriate level with their child. Another book that I like that has a lot of mindfulness strategies for kids in it is called Sitting Still Like a Frog. It has uh, kind of scripts that you can read um, with a child. Those would be great things to kind of try out together. Other ways of using mindfulness kind of as part of a routine would be just doing like a reset at any point. Like I think about, you know, the Staples commercial with the big, you know, the easy button. I kind of have like a reset button and taking a deep breath and really noticing that and checking in with your body. How am I feeling? What am I thinking about? What's going on in the world? Are there any stuck points in my body of tension that I need to shake out? It's like hitting a great big reset button on our central nervous system. Because if we're carrying around a lot of stress and anxiety, whether it's through tension in our body, stressful thoughts that we're mulling through or ruminating around, it's going to, again, pull all of our physiology into that heightened arousal state. And that deep breath is like hitting that reset of everything's okay with me right now. We can do that with kids too. You know, we could build it into a leaving for school routine, pack the backpacks, everybody grab their lunch. Let's all take three deep breaths together before we get in the car to go to school. We could set an intention as part of that too. 
let's think about what we most want to do today what what would be a great thing to have happen today or how we want to show up and be for other people today you know with little kids you can do that all out loud so you're kind of modeling for them here's how mom does it here's how dad does it and give child a sense of like okay this is something that i can do too you could do it on a coming home from school routine coming home from work routine especially for parents who are you know coming home from work and picking kids up on the way home checking in about how the day went and then maybe finding a point like midway on the commute to say, okay, now we're kind of like shedding the earlier parts of today and coming back to right now. We're going to take a deep breath together and kind of let go of that. Maybe there's a great big oak tree you drive by and that becomes your uh, landmark that now we're halfway home. We're going to let go of what already happened and kind of come into the rest of the evening together. So sometimes in those check-ins with your kids, you might find they've had some big and confusing emotions. So my next question is, how can we teach kids to understand and react better to their own big emotions. Yeah, an important piece is in understanding it internally and also being able to communicate about it to others is to give them that vocabulary. So helping kids understand what an emotional experience is, you know, what are some ways that they can describe it, what are some feelings words that they can use is really, really powerful. I had a graduate school instructor who used to talk about emotions like the crayon box, right? So if you go to a restaurant where they give you like a kid's menu and the little four pack of crayons, you know, you get like the red, yellow, green, and blue crayon. The red, yellow, green, and blue of emotions are happy, sad, uh, mad, and scared in no particular color order. (laughs) But, you know, those are kind of like the most basic emotions. And then you also have like that, what, 64, maybe there's even 128 box of crayons with all those crazy colors with interesting names on them that are just combinations of them. So if you can start with those basic emotions, happy, mad, sad, scared, and then help children like to grow, like what's excited, excited is maybe happy with a little bit of scared, maybe like there's a little bit of tension. We could come up with all kinds of other ones. I'm sure there's some really good resources that you can download online that are like feelings, uh, wheels and feelings, vocabulary that start like with the most basic and then have all kinds of descriptors. Some of those aren't appropriate for real small kids. They don't have that huge of a, of a vocabulary, but giving them a starting point with those words is important. And then giving them some way of communicating the strength. Um, And a real simple one for a little kid is probably a happy face, a like, you know, straight face and like a frowny face. They can indicate, you know, where they're feeling and then how much for a little kid, it could be like a one, two or three older kids can do a scale of 10 pretty easily. So if I'm, you know, mad, am I mad at a two or am I mad at an eight? Cause that's really different. And the way we're going to respond to that is going to be different. If a, if a child is able to express, yeah, I'm, this thing happened at school and now I feel really mad and I'm mad at a two, maybe that means they're in a zone where they can talk about it and they're open to hearing some strategies and uh, maybe even uh, role-playing. What might you do differently in that situation? If it happens again, who could you talk to if that situation, you know, comes up at school or how would you like to resolve it now? If a child's at an eight, maybe that's where they need some help with regulating what's going on in their body. You can model that for them again. When I'm at an eight for mad, it really helps me to take a break. Maybe I need to go for a walk around the block and then come back and try and deal with whatever was going on. Maybe I need to sit quietly and take some deep breaths. Maybe I just really need to notice what is going on when I feel mad. You know, where do I feel the madness in my body? Does it feel like I have a knot in my stomach? Does it feel like my muscles are really tight? Am I noticing that I have a lot of thoughts that are coming really fast? 
that's mindfulness of that, like that bodily process and that emotional and, and mental process that happens when we're feeling that way. Um, so we can, you know, we can help them with all that. And then if we can do something when we're at an eight, nine or 10, when we're at a 10, we're not going to be open to reasoning and logic, but if we can do something to help release a little bit of that anger, work some of that through our body, settle our body down a little bit, then maybe we can problem solve a little bit better, think more logically and, you know, have a conversation with a parent about what to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally on board with that. I think it's also important to remember sometimes kids just need you to listen. So maybe a technique could be to ask them, do you want a solution or do you just want an ear, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an easy one, I think, for some of us, (laughs) especially when we get into problem solving mode, it can be it can be hard to remember that that sometimes they just need to vent and they need to be validated. Yeah, I would feel crummy, too, if that happened to me at school. I think it's important to remember that just because kids don't have the same problem as adults, it doesn't mean their problems and reactions are invalid or less important. Maybe to us, losing a sock is a minor inconvenience at best, but to the three-year-old, it's devastating. Or for the 14-year-old who got dumped for the first time, heartbreak does feel like the end of the world because they don't have years of experience with relationships and breakups like most adults do. We should listen to their feelings and make sure to support them regardless of how we feel we would react to the same problem as an adult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily mean if in our mind, whatever was the trigger is out of, you know, out of proportion to the reaction. And we don't necessarily have to validate that that was an appropriate response, but we can still validate the emotion. You know, I can, I can see why you're feeling so upset. Doesn't mean that we're condoning, like, and then you trashed your brother's room because you're upset with him. Maybe that's not, not okay, but I can understand that, you know, when, he hid your sock from you and you spent hours looking for it and you realized he did it. I can understand why you would be so mad about that. Yeah, absolutely. We need to focus on those better behaviors and those better ways of expressing those emotions because the emotions are valid, but sometimes we get angry or scared and do something we shouldn't. And kids have less of an ability to distinguish between how they should react and how they are reacting. So those are good things to model as an adult and explain to your child to give them that vocabulary. Yeah. And that's another place where mindfulness really comes in because it's that little, sometimes imperceptible pause between I have a feeling, I have an urge, and now I behave a certain way. And it's between that urge to react and that reaction is where we can really make a change. So if a child can recognize, you know, I'm feeling really angry, I'm thinking about being destructive or, you know, yelling at so-and-so or slamming this thing down. And now I can be aware that that's actually a choice I have. Just because I have that urge does not mean I have to take action on it. You know, and another really great tool that we can bring in for working with kids on this is children's literature, especially for, you know, for younger kids, like reading stories together, asking how might you feel in that situation? Like we can help them understand feelings, come up with a vocabulary around that, use that to develop empathy for others, use that to understand that different different people have different perspectives, just something that might make me happier and excited, might make somebody else nervous and scared. All those tools are ways that we can help kids understand emotion and, and learn how to regulate emotion. Um, in my picture book that I recently uh, released, Rocky's Christmas Journey, one of the things that I include at the end is a parent guide or caregiver guide for reading together um, with just lots of suggestions for questions to you know, help kids think kind of beyond the story um, and use the story as a springboard for conversations about feelings, conversations about uh, perspective taking and empathy, um, and even conversations that help support literacy skills. 
So as we know, children learn constantly and they learn from all sorts of sources, like what we say and do, what they see, TV, apps, movies, YouTube, friends, school, teachers, other parents, strangers, doctors, and books. Children's books are unique in that they tell a fun and engaging story. They have lovely illustrations and sometimes audio tracks. And they teach our little ones more about the world and themselves in an accessible manner. If we take the Better Behavior series by P.J. Wright as an example, we can use these books to start conversations about emotional well-being and mental health. When Your Dino Gets the Downers, for example, helps kids understand sadness and healthy ways to react to it. The focus should always be on understanding where the less desirable behaviors are originating from and replacing them with healthy habits and emotional outputs. Yeah, and I think a key point there is recognizing emotion and recognizing behavior as two separate entities, um, which for, you know, even for some adults, it's hard to like kind of pull that apart, but certainly for kids, that can be a difficult distinction. You know, I always kind of come back to like every emotion's okay. Emotions are just information. They're kind of information about your internal processes, reactions, values, and that can be really valuable information. And just like we want to use sensory information, understand what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste. We also want to understand that emotional information because it's telling you something. And, you know, yes, having a tantrum may not solve whatever it's telling you or may not help you to take action to manage whatever it's telling you. Being destructive may not do that either, but we can help guide kids to have uh, maybe more effective conversations, more effective ways of managing um, those emotions and getting those needs met, whatever the need was that brought up that emotion is probably a pretty real and pretty understandable uh, and valid human need. And when we can separate the behavior off from the emotion, let that emotion just be a source of information, that can be a really helpful approach. Okay, so last question for today, or last two questions, I guess. How can we talk to kids about boundaries and consent? How can we model mindfulness for our children? Yeah, I think the the second part there, how do we model mindfulness? Uh, we can you know, just be very uh, specific when, you know, when we're um, talking with kids about what we do, you know, if we're practicing mindfulness, if we're doing things to help ourselves regulate, help ourselves reconnect with the present moment, you know, we can share that with kids and, and, tell them like, this is what mom does. This is what dad does to help when we're feeling really strong feelings or when we're noticing we're worrying about the future. Um, but really we're playing a game together and we really want to stay focused on the game. This is what I do. So kind of just being deliberate about that, um, is great. You know, again, there are specific tools for, that are written more for kids. Um, there are some that are kind of like more game based. Uh, you can kind of just do a little, a little literature search and come up with some great books, um, that would help with that. Again, my book, Mindful Mondays, has lots of strategies in there that could easily be made more kid-appropriate or, or kind of shared with a child and practiced together. And then to speak to the, the first part of your question about boundaries um, and consent, I, I do think that there's, there's a component of mindfulness that really helps with boundaries. So when I think about when boundaries get crossed, we often have a really strong emotional reaction. Could be anger, uh, could be frustration, could be confusion, disappointment, um, anything like that. But often like if we can pay attention to what the emotions are and then use that emotional experience, like, gosh, I'm feeling really angry right now. Hey, I'm recognizing my anger kind of came after 
you yelled at me and you, you crossed, you crossed a boundary. Maybe you don't use that word with a little child because you're not going to understand it, but just when you yell at me, I feel disrespected and we work as a family to be respectful to one another. So please let's use a regular inside voice when we talk to each other um, would be an example of that. So using mindfulness to recognize that emotional reaction and kind of digging into that emotional reaction to kind of understand where, where our boundaries are and helping kids with that too. Hey, I saw that you got so angry when your sister pulled your hair. You know, I understand that that would make me angry too. And it'd make me angry if somebody pulled my hair because they touched me in an unkind way without my permission. And I don't like when that happens. So kind of giving kids that language and helping them understand like, okay, that anger outburst didn't come from anywhere. The anger outburst came because like we all have implicit permission to have this boundary around ourselves, around our body and what comes in, comes in with our permission. And maybe, you know, within a family, it's okay to like, pat someone on the shoulder or give a hug um, without saying, Hey, can I hug you now? But we also have different definitions for that outside of the family. So like that obviously brings in a conversation that that can be really rich and helpful around consent and, and bodies. And when is it okay to be touched? When is it maybe not okay to be touched? Do you have the right to refuse a touch? Which I would say, yes, you do. <laughs> um, and, you know, help model that for kids. Yeah, for sure. A lot of the time people talk about consent in sexual context, but boundaries go so far beyond that. As a kid, you don't always want to hug and kiss relatives, especially if you don't know them or haven't seen them in years. Telling our kids they have to hug Aunt Kelly teaches them their level of comfort doesn't matter so long as Aunt Kelly's feelings are spared. Because, oh, poor Aunt Kelly, she hasn't seen you in so long. She really wants a hug, so you need to do that, and I don't care what your boundaries are. That's what we're telling them. Yeah. And there's a, that last part that you just said there, you're also teaching someone else's feelings are more important than your feelings. And that's uh, not something I want to teach, you know, my children. And I hope as a society, we get away from teaching that, you know, that yes, everyone's feelings are important, but putting your feelings in a space that doesn't feel good at all. So that somebody else's feelings are okay. Um, is kind of a recipe for codependency and probably not what we want for, you know, raising young, independent, um, you know, healthy people. And especially for girls, right? That's so often what we are taught as women. We're taught we have to put others' needs before our own. So I think we really need to teach kids young that they have a choice in what happens with their body. This way, they learn to demand respect and to respect others. One of the books in the Better Behavior series by PJ Wright, When Your Hippo Gets the Huggies, explores this need to ask permission before hugging friends in a child-friendly manner. Hippo learns to ask and wait before hugging or poking or tickling others. And that's such an important introduction into concepts like consent that will come back again and again throughout their lifetimes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was all my questions for today, Kim. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's um great to chat. And for anybody who's looking for more information, best ways to connect with me are through my website, which is drkimdwyer.com. Um, I have a books tab on there with information about Rocky's Christmas journey and mindful Mondays. Um, and on the page for mindful Mondays, um, there is a breathing meditation that people are welcome to, you know, to download and access for free. And then on, on Rocky's Christmas journey, I also have a coloring sheet for kids, um, which can just be a fun activity to share. That's awesome. I'll have that link in the description of the episode, as well as our links to the Better Behavior series and our website, as always. Happy reading, everyone!